0: We are and always will be a nation of immigrants.
1: This is my country, my damn country, give me my country, you can keep the rest. Bold men and women yearning for freedom and opportunity who leave their homelands and come to a new country to start their lives over. We were strangers once too. My country, my damn
0: country, give me my country, you can keep the rest.
1: Hello, 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 aliens and allies. Your friendly Russian is here. This is We the Aliens podcast, and I am your host, Sasha Kapustina. Here, I talk to immigrants who are kicking ass in the U.S. Thank you for tuning in this week. My guest is Essen Zafar. Essen is a civil rights lawyer, a professor, and an author. As senior advisor on civil rights and civil liberties at the Department of Homeland Security, he advises on matters of freedom of religion, fighting violence against women, and LGBTQ rights. Essen teaches at Georgetown University, George Mason University, George Washington University, and Temple University. He serves on the executive board of ACLU California and on the advisory board for Team Rubicon, an organization that helps returning veterans apply their skills to help communities facing natural disasters. Essen is the director of the newly formed Center on Inequality at Arizona State University called The Difference Engine, and he also hosts a podcast called Unfair Nation, where he talks about power, inequality, and civil justice. Essen came to the U.S. as a child refugee, escaping the Gulf War. Here's his story. When did you come here, and where did you come here from?
0: We were immigrants like three times removed. So my grandfather on my dad's side was from Iran. He immigrated to what was then India. And then he immigrated to Kuwait when Kuwait discovered oil. So he was already an immigrant. Then my dad kind of grew up there, but then went back to when India became Pakistan so that he lived there. But he was an immigrant there. like He didn't really belong there. And then he came. Then when I was born, I after I was six months old, I lived in Kuwait, but I wouldn't really belong there cause I'm not Kuwaiti. I'm not Arab. Um, so like many people in that part of the world, I was an immigrant. And then the first Gulf War happened. There's always a Gulf War. This was the, the Persian Gulf War, the one in 1990. And then we were like refugees. So we were refugees. We. Uh, We're trapped there. We tried to escape four or five times. Fourth time we succeeded.
1: Yeah, you always skip that part in the interviews. I've listened to a couple. so (laughs) uh, (laughs) Yeah, we tried to escape a couple times. It didn't really work out. But can you give me a quick but longer version of that?
0: Yeah. Thanks for making me relive my childhood trauma, Sasha. I appreciate it.
1: That's what this podcast is about.
0: That's right. It's the right. Other people living vicariously. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Kuwait is a country, uh, for those that are unaware, uh, doesn't produce a lot of its own food. It doesn't produce a lot of its own water. Everything's imported in. It's largely a desert. And so when Saddam Hussein invaded the country, one of the first things he did is he bombed the airport. um, And so you couldn't bring anything in. And then the U.S. and its eminent wisdom imposed sanctions on Iraq of which Kuwait was now a part because Iraq had invaded Kuwait. And when you impose sanctions on Iraq, you're imposing sanctions on Kuwait because it's not part of Iraq. And that means there's very little goods coming in. So food and water, potable water, started to decline in the country uh, very quickly. It became the most valuable resource. And it gets very hot in that country. And so... Um, And with an airport that's bombed, and they also, uh, Saddam Hussein also bombed the telephone infrastructure, so you couldn't really make calls more than a few miles apart. The uh, telephony switch network didn't really work after a couple of miles, so you could call somebody a few miles away, but then you couldn't call somebody seven or eight miles away.
1: And how old were you at that point?
0: Eight or nine, eight. So you remember
1: it pretty vividly.
0: Yeah, I mean it was a notable event in my life, and so I remember a lot of it. And I also kept a little journal.
1: And you had your family was pretty well off, like you were a middle class, and
0: uh, we were middle class. I wouldn't say we were well off, but we did okay for ourselves. Yeah. And
1: so when all of that was instantaneously taken away, that must have been a huge shock to to your parents.
0: Uh, I think it was probably a huge shock to my parents. Um, to me, it was like um, I'm sure if I sit down with a psychiatrist or psychologist for a while, like, you know, there'll be some indication of some trauma. I'm sure there's some idiosyncrasies, and I have like my probably my obsession with working in areas of civil rights is probably indicative of something that arises from some deep level of trauma. We're getting really personal on this podcast, and it's only been like five minutes. But, uh, but, you know, for me at the time, it was a lot of fun, because all of the commodities that I cared about, like uh, the soccer, football, we call it football in the real world. The football um, stars and their their trading cards and stationaries and books and toys and all that. Nobody cared about that stuff. People just cared about the essentials. And so we were able to get that at like rock bottom prices. You know, you're literally free in some of the stores. They would just sell it. So I had like the time of my life and there's no school anymore. And uh, I could just hang out with my friends. We were actually moving permanently, speaking of being an immigrant. So we'd come back and forth several times. We were moving permanently to the U.S. on August 12th. And on August 10, we have a plane ticket, everything. We'd sold furniture. August 2nd is when Saddam Hussein invaded. You know, and I remember the day I was the first person to notice that things had gone wrong because I, I heard the, the jets flying and then the patio door was shaken in the morning. And um, and then like I woke my parents up to be like, you know, something's going I can hear planes and it was really, really loud. They go right above your head. So if you've had any kind of fighter jets fly over your head, it's pretty deafening. Yeah. And I had my mom because, you know, she had this notion after having lived in the U S for a few years and having family here, I don't know why she, but it was important to her that I learn how to swim because that's, I guess what Americans do, like in people in Kuwait, like what am I going to do in Kuwait swimming? Like, I mean, there's an ocean right there, but like, why would I swim? Cause.
1: no.
0: Nobody thinks like that.
1: I don't know. My dad insisted that swimming is a survival skill. Yeah,
0: right. So she had the kind of the same mentality, right? But somehow it was tied to me going to the US. And so she had swimming lessons, mm-hmm. which I was like I did not want to take swimming lessons. You know, I you know, it's this whole idea when we talk about immigrant mentality like what is considered like everybody has a thing when they come to America. My kids will not speak in their language. They're going to just respond in English. Like sometimes that's what it is for people. For yeah. some people, it's like, learn how to swim. And I remember the bombs fell, you know, everybody waking up and my mom's like, it, because he was in shock, I'm assuming. She was like, you know, he still has to go to his swimming lessons. We're leaving for America in 10 days. And my dad's like, you know, we're being invaded. Like he's like, no, you have to take him to go swim. You have to do it. Oh my God. And so on his way to his lab, which he used to, my dad used to run a medical, like a microbiologist lab. On the way to the lab to see if everything was okay, You know, because I guess this is what you do when you're married. You just listen to your partner. He, like, stopped off at the swimming center, which was obviously closed. Like, nobody's (laughs) going to show up swimming when the country's being invaded. Probably not. And I I remember that was one of the happiest times of my life, that I didn't have to go to stupid swimming lessons. So for me, it was a very, as a child, I had a very different, initially, a very different um, outlook. There were parts of it that were truly miserable, but um, that's not until we got to the refugee camps.
1: And so... The airport is bombed. You can't get out. You need to get out some other way. And so what's the what was the plan?
0: We tried to get out. And the first way we tried to get out was like through a caravan of friends and family of people that were just working there in Kuwait, like immigrants, obviously, through going through Saudi Arabia, that caravan was intercepted by an Iraqi patrol caravan. by caravan, I mean, like you put everything in your cars and you try to head out
1: and how many of you were in the caravan?
0: Thirteen cars. And that was intercepted and turned back. Then we tried, we had green cards to the U.S. So we tried to convince the embassy to take us as they were taking out U.S. citizens, but they only took out U.S. citizens, not people with a green card. So that didn't work. Then we tried to leave through kind of this no man's land, which is just like pure desert between Saudi and Kuwait, because there was rumors that it wasn't being patrolled. There's no internet, by the way. I mean, there is an internet, but nobody uses it. It's very, you know, nascent at this time. And obviously the phone lines aren't working. So... It's all, all we're learning is through like rumor and innuendo and like some BBC shortwave stuff. Wow. So there's not a lot of information. So we thought, okay, the Southern part of the Kuwait-Saudi border, there's a no man's land would we'll try to escape there. Now, um, not everybody had a four by four. And if you're familiar with driving on the desert, you don't want to take a rear wheel or front wheel car drive. It's a bad idea, but that's all most people had was sedans, you know? And so again, it was a caravan of 12, 13 cars. And uh, half the car sank in quicksand, including ours. And then I think they pulled it out once. And, you know, when I say pull it out, it's all the men got together and literally hauled the car out of the quicksand. And it is about 125 degrees now. And the, And the car is, you know, oh. like it burns your hands. So yeah. it's roasting. So they hauled it out. And, you know, you have everything in this car because you're like, I'm out. I'm out of Kuwait. I got to take all my... my my belongings, they hold it out once and then it sank after a while again. And that second time we could not retrieve the car. It was too deep and people's hands were burned. And then they would like put us in another car that was still kind of was surviving. And I remember that the car they put us in, which belonged to one of the other caravan families, I think had like, I don't know why this memory stands out, but they had uh, their VCR, back then VCRs were valuable in the early nineties. They had their VCR on the floor of the car And I remember I put my foot on there and it had like sand or whatever. And she was like, watch out, don't get any sand in my VCR. And I remember thinking like, as a child, like, how is this, why is this important? Like, how is this the most important thing right now? I just lost, we just lost our vehicle and, you know, we only had one car um, and everything in that car, almost everything in that car, you know, we lost, we lost our most precious belongings that we were going to bring with us. The caravan had lost a few cars, including our own. And then they ended up um, coming upon another caravan that had failed from a few weeks back and there were bodies in the car of people that didn't make it. Oh my God. Um, And so our caravan freaked out. And so what they did is they sent, and the other thing that had happened is one of the cars had gotten lost. So then they said, we're not gonna make it. They put everybody, most of the people, they they put them on one four by four, the only four by four we had left and sent them back. Mostly kids, some adults, but mostly kids. And then my dad and a few other like men went to look for that car that was lost and they never found that car. So I don't know what happened to it. Oh my God. And But my dad made it back, you know, the next day. And I almost fell off of that four by four, I remember. Cause I, I think I must've had heat stroke or something. And they put me on, so they found this four by four and they said, you know, everybody who's lost cars, including us, get on this four by four and let's head out. But they ran out of space. And so they put me in the bed of the four by four on top of a mound of luggage. So it was like a little mountain that was higher than the bed of the truck. And as the truck started jiggling around on its way back, the luggage started falling off. And they put me on top of the luggage. And there was this one guy there. And he told my mom, like, don't worry about it. She's sitting in the front part of the truck. I'll take care of this kid. They all hold on to him. And then he got he fainted. And so he kind of let go of my hand. And then I started sliding off the truck. And uh I hung on for like dear life literally yeah my foot was like really close to the highway once we got onto onto a highway it was a pretty bad experience that was the second time tried to escape yeah so there was a third time when i heard you want me to still keep going
1: yes not every day like it's the first time anybody is sharing something like that on this podcast oh wow and i i really appreciate you telling this in in all these details yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, because I don't think people realize that this stuff actually happens. It's like movie level stuff, but it's a real thing.
0: That's why, Sasha, you and I are going to make a movie out of this. Let's do it. So the third time, <laughs> let's do it. Third, The third time, uh, I it was my fault because I heard on the BBC that they were letting people from Kuwait exit through Basra, which is a southern town in Iraq, through Iran. And like the BBC guy was like effusive, you know, like the gates are all open and everybody's streaming out. And I mean, he had like this, you know, like very typical British, like euphoria. Well, I don't know. British euphoria is not typical, atypical British euphoria. <laughs> so I told my dad and then he was like, sounds good. So then now we don't have a car, you know, because our car sank in the mm-hmm. desert on the last trip. So we bummed a ride with our neighbors in their car. Um, and then we drove the five, six hours into Iraq to all the way to the city of Basra. And by the time we got there, the border between Iran and Iraq had been closed. Lots of other people had heard the news story that showed up. Apparently it was only open for a few minutes and we showed up like several hours late because wow. that's how long it takes to get there.
1: Yeah.
0: And uh, the problem with these situations is like, you know, fuel, fuel is more expensive than food yeah. and water. And so, you know, that's two and a half tanks. The dinar, the Kuwaiti dinar, it's not worth anything. Even the dollar isn't worth anything. You know, it's all, it's becoming a bartering economy. So we failed, so we drove back. And around this time, like food really had started running short and what they had was like um, heavy rationing in the grocery stores. And so the grocery stores had basically, you know, would open for an hour in the morning and they'd allow only one woman to enter per family. You know, my dad would kind of try to send me in and sneak in and get an extra loaf of uh, bread. And uh, I would try to like sneak in with my mom to get some extra groceries in the hour that was allotted. And you get like two minutes. So it's like, you know, there's a show on TV called, now on Netflix again, called Supermarket Sweep, where you get like two minutes to put everything you can in your cart. Whatever you can put in your cart, you win. Yeah, it's a real show. It's just came back on Netflix, FYI, listeners. Very American. (laughs) <laughs> Supermarket sweep, and uh, that's what we went. It was like it was like a Hunger Games. Yeah, is really what it was, literally. So times were tough, and then the fourth time,
1: how much time passes between the attempts? A few days or a few weeks?
0: About a month has passed between each attempt, three to four weeks, maybe a month, because now we're really getting desperate. And so lots of scammers start whenever there's a crisis like this. And then so near the end of the year, I don't know. My parents found this guy, but he's a bus driver. And he said, "I'm taking people through Iraq to Jordan." And once you're in Jordan, you do whatever you want, but at least you're out of the country. We didn't have any assets left. So my dad pawned the plane tickets we had for the four of us, me, my sister, my mom, and my dad, for two seats. Well, they weren't really seats, they were kind of underneath the floor, two two places to huddle under. And that's what um, what we paid the whatever four or five thousand dollars for. And then me and my dad were in kind of one space. And when I say space, I would say maybe four and a half feet tall and then one space for my sister and my mom and so we would huddle kind of like we're really crouched in a hidden compartment kind of area Uh, how old was your sister three and a half oh god yeah it was pretty bad and then you know my mom like baked her jewelry into bread and we put some you know other valuables inside like um bottles of cream because the idea was that the bus would travel through Iraq to get to Jordan and Iraqi soldiers knowing that there's refugees coming from Kuwait that have access that have some cause Kuwait was a rich country yeah. would stop and like search and and the Iraqi population was impoverished right like themselves were impoverished right like extremely like the Iraqi military i remember the kids who would who would patrol our area like i would play football with the soccer with them and they didn't have any shoes they would get a uniform but they didn't have enough money where they were given shoes or they've given one pair of shoes. And if they, that messed up. You were playing football with the invaders? Yeah, because there was only, there were only like 14, 15 year old kids for the most part. Poor, really poor, right? From the villages of Iraq that were conscript, conscripted. And so when they had an opportunity and discipline was lax, right? And they were just like, you know, they would, they would stop the bus and be like, looks like you're carrying refugees, you know, from Kuwait. Like, let's look at their luggage. Let's look at through your luggage. Let's see if there's a hidden compartment anywhere. So we hit all that stuff, we hit ourselves. Uh, and then what that bus driver did is he got us you know, right past the border of Iraq into Jordan. He was supposed to go to Amman, which is the capital and drop us off there. But there's a no man's land, kind of a land border area about 70 miles that doesn't belong to either country. And what he did is in the middle of the night, he dropped us off right there in this like random refugee camp in this no man's land uh, with like this massive sandstorm blowing and he bounced. Because he didn't want to risk like going into Jordan, getting questioned and going through customs or whatever, because he's technically illegally trafficking in human beings.
1: Not technically, quite factually. I mean, yeah.
0: I mean, it's not illegal <laughs> when it has our consent. Right. So we consented to it. But still, right. refugees have to be processed. Right. And he didn't want to deal with that. So then we were stuck in that. refugee. I mean, I can go on. I mean, there's a much longer to this story. Please. Then we were stuck in that <laughs> refugee camp for a while, Uh, that was a pretty horrible experience. Uh, It was just a bunch of tents in the middle of the desert, so completely exposed, extremely cold at night, extremely hot in the morning. We had really nothing, just like a, just nothing. And we would sit in these tents.
1: Did your parents think that they will be able to go to the States with with your documents or?
0: Well, no, we were so far, we're just in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, just hopeless. So I wasn't an administered camp you know so there's some refugee camps that are administered by the un or whatever and there's some just ad hoc
1: oh that's wild and
0: dangerous extremely dangerous so some aid and so we had organized like you know people to like look out for things but it was so secluded that it's unlikely anybody would show up and so some aid organizations would show up with like f- food assistance but it was um it wasn't regular and sanitation was really bad like we had one just one tent that just people had collectively decided the people that were there before we got there, you know, there would be drop offs from time to time of random refugees that people took advantage of that had become like the restroom tent, Uh, pretty horrible place. Uh, But that's, you know, that's where we all went. Um, Just like that kind of was the, just a bunch of tents in really, really bad condition with very little food exposed to the elements and temperatures.
1: And how did you manage to get out of there?
0: Yeah, so miraculously, my mom had uh, citizenship, Pakistani citizenship, and it's a developing country, but uh, for some reason, Pakistan had set up a very comprehensive refugee assistance program, and part of that program was uh, to go out to these random out-of-the-way refugee camps that were dotting the Middle East and search for citizens, and they found us after some time. And then they shipped us to Amman, which is the capital of Jordan. And they had this massive like refugee assistance operation where at least we got like three meals a day. We slept on the floor in the uh, Jordan, in the Amman airport. Um, And they give you like a little blanket and that blanket is your space on the ground. But you get three meals. You have access to taking a shower. We haven't taken a shower for a while. And then after a few weeks, month or two, they ship you out. They give you, either you can stay there you know, as long as you need to, or you can ship out to uh, to Pakistan and they give you a thousand dollars, which is nothing really. So that's what we did. We shipped to Pakistan. And then, you know, the story goes on. Then my parents like tried to raise some money over there. And then eventually my dad and I, my dad was like, we have to get to the U.S., like what the original plan was. Meanwhile, my dad had a job lined up in August 12th. Right. Like everything was set. He had a job, everything. And all of that went away when we stopped communicating after the 2nd of August. So he lost his job, lost his house. Oh wow. So we came here, our credit was terrible. And so then we lived on when we came to LA, we lived on food stamps and welfare. I wrote a letter to the mayor of my city, um, in LA and I asked her for assistance. Refugee assistance it was inadequate. Which city? Uh, City of Santa Clarita. I still have the article somewhere. And uh, she responded and she like, I, I did a little, they did a little report on me. The CBS 2, Channel 2 News did a little report. I was like a little celebrity for a bit. So you were already an activist. Kind of, yeah. Lots of donations came in, which embarrassed my mom. Um, and, you know, that was the generosity of the American kind of people, right? Which, um, which was astounding. But at the same time, we experienced a ton of discrimination too, to the extent where my dad changed my name. You had a special name. Yeah, my last uh, name used to be uh, Essen Hussein, because that was my dad's last name and still is his last name. Of course, we have no relation to Hussein. Hussein's a very common surname in parts of South Asia, Southeast Asia and the Middle East. But people thought we were related to Saddam Hussein and there was a war going on against him. They didn't know the entire story. Like He was definitely not my favorite person. I had lost my entire house and suffered quite a bit due to his actions. But they thought we were one and the same. And so there was a lot of you know, discrimination. Some acts of violence to the extent where my dad was just like, "I'll just change his last name to my first name."
1: Some acts of violence. Your car was torched.
0: That's right. Yeah, the car was torched. That's right. The Renault, nineteen eighty-three, sky blue Renault.
1: <laughs> I love you. You like to skip those things. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's just some acts. Some discrimination. There was actual danger to your life because of your last name. That's right. Your dad didn't just change it because it was inconvenient or people were making fun of you. No, you're right. That's intense. It was
0: pretty intense. Yeah. And I remember like going to the grocery store and being like super embarrassed to use like food stamps. Like that was another thing. I remember. We'd lost all of our clothes in the 10 different iterations it it take Like we could basically survived with nothing. Right. I had two pairs of pants and two pairs of shirts. That's all I had left. So I had to wear that when I started school for, like, months. And I looked like I was going to, like, church every day or something because they were formal clothes, and that's all we my mom had saved. And then they were saved some money up, and then they bought me a pair of shorts because that's what I'd asked for because all the kids wore shorts. And the shorts I had were really long, so they came down below my knees, and then they were bright green, you know, like super bright green, and then bright red. And uh... – <laughs>
1: I think it's uh, a testament to resilience that you can laugh about that stuff.
0: I mean, it was kind of funny. There's lots of other funny stories. But yeah, I, I, I think that's a productive response to trauma.
1: But were you, after experiencing all that trauma, being in school here and being exposed to all this harassment and abuse how were you feeling at that time
0: yeah i did not i did not like it in the u.s yeah because also i went to a private british school my parents couldn't really afford it but they would make sacrifices in other ways in kuwait to make sure that i went there the advantage was that i was relatively well adjusted you know and i had a lot of kuwait is a cosmopolitan or it was a cosmopolitan country i'm sure it still is um with people from different nationalities and things like that so It's very similar to the U.S. in that way. So it was nothing, that wasn't the the jarring thing for me. I mean, the American cultural experience certainly was. But then, you know, I would like stand up and respond to my teachers, you know, that's a very British private school thing. You
1: were too proper?
0: I was too proper. I had a little British accent. I didn't play basketball. I didn't, like all the things, right? And so lots of cultural shock. And so that was rough. And then it doesn't help, you know, I mean, your family can't afford to clothe you properly. or And so you, you know, you just don't, you look like weird. You act weird, and uh, kids can be pretty cruel. But I say it's a productive response. It doesn't necessarily mean it's the only response or even a positive response, but it's a productive response. Humor is a productive response to trauma, in my opinion, because what it does is it helps you reframe the problem. Right? In order to 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 produce a response that you can from a from a trauma that you can laugh at, means you have to tell yourself a different story. And the process of telling yourself a different story from the same set of facts, it tells you that you have agency over your life, right? Like you change the story. That's an element of control that you exercise over something that's technically uncontrollable. In fact, it's the only control we can exercise in our lives is how we talk to ourselves about something that's happened, right? And humor is one way of doing that. There's nothing else we really control except our reaction to external events. And so I think that like that's something I hopefully picked up from that and other parts of my life history
1: that's amazing and did you develop it then at that time or did that come to you later
0: uh i don't know when it happened i mean
1: I, so how how did you manage it in the moment
0: my mom was a great help uh she was very supportive my dad um, was very supportive you know a lot of it i withdrew a little bit um i made a few friends that were Helpful. I also saw that my parents, you know, my dad worked at, you know, Target. He had to go back to, to school. To, to They didn't recognize his degrees. He would work in the morning as a teller at Target and go to UCLA in the afternoons and evenings and study on the 405 and uh, the Sepulveda Pass, like with the book on his knees. You know, and as soon as he was done after a few years, then my mom did the same thing. And so I think I learned a lot from their resilience and their ability to like bounce back in their early 40s.
1: They were in their early 40s.
0: They were in their late 30s. My dad was 38, 39, yeah, when he came. That's rough. Yeah, so he was 40, I think, by the time he got here. Yeah, started completely fresh. All assets gone, completely wiped out. All your friends, no friends, no assets, nothing. I don't know. I've only recently become self-aware of these things. In what way? Uh, You know, you become more, as you get uh, older, I guess, you become more introspective about, like, why you are the way you are. Mm Mm-hmm. And so over the last several years, you know, you think about like, why, why is it that Or people have asked me and I have like, I don't know, like, why am I interested in civil rights issues or human rights? Like, why? I don't know why. Like, so I've started thinking about like, we, what is it? Why? Why? I mean, like, I could make a lot more money Mm -hmm. doing other stuff. I could probably have a job that's in some ways less stressful, but it, I don't feel like I'm stressed out um, when I do this kind of work. And so I've started thinking like, you know, I just like some part of it's probably sympathy. Some part of it's probably this desire that nobody else should experience what I experience. Um, you know, I've taken on roles where I place myself in some kind of a protective role or advisory role. I'm a, I was a senior advisor on civil rights in the government. I'm a teacher and a professor now and have been for 10 years. I take on the same role with friends and family. I kind of like, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll take care of it, you know, like that kind of role. And mm-hmm. so, uh and I'm, you know, if I'm really getting like uh, deep about it, like I imagine that the part of that is like the ability to control my environment has become valuable to me. Cause as a child, I, I went through a long period of time where I had no control despite the best efforts of my parents. And, you know, without them, I'd probably be even crazier than I am now. So they did a lot to, created an, a, a bubble of safety in a very chaotic environment. Uh, but I have a desire to like have elements of, um, you know, to be like, I know what it feels like for you to be in this chaotic environment or have like no agency. Or, so I'm going to help you out. Like we're going to work on this together. And that makes me feel because I've helped them achieve some stability and just sense of justice that, that I feel like I've made the world a more just place, which makes me feel better because then I achieve a sense of stability and justice. Does that make sense?
1: That makes total sense. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed it. Tune in on Thursday for part two of the conversation where we talk more about inequality and Essen's unique take on ways to address it. Find Essen on Twitter, find his podcast on Fair Nation, wherever you listen to podcasts, and follow the Difference Engine if you care about innovation and social justice. All links are in the show notes. Let us know what you think about the podcast. Shoot us a message. All the contact info and links are also in the show notes and on our website. Join our rooms on Clubhouse. Let's chat in person, almost in person, every Tuesday morning and Thursday evening. If you need an invite, DM me on Instagram. And don't forget to share the show with a friend. I don't know, someone who came to the U.S. as a refugee or someone who just can't help themselves and have to fight for other people or someone who doesn't think the U.S. should let anyone in. Maybe hearing a story like this can move them you never know. Just click share and text them a link. Just actually do it. Don't just listen to me. Think of a friend who should hear this story and text them this link. All I want is for more people to know that immigrants are kicking ass in the US. And remember, we're here to stay. We will find our way. Thank you for listening. Have a great week. Keep staying safe. Keep staying sane love you all. My damn country, peace